We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, four passages were read from the Bible. Psalm 23, John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, and verse 23. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Almost three years ago, Janelle and I had moved from England to Houston, and we uh, had sold everything we owned in order to go to England and kind of go through school and do all that stuff. So when we came back, we didn't really have anything. And um, we had one vehicle at this time, and I had just gotten a job as an adjunct professor at the Houston Graduate School of Theology, which was on the other side of Houston. Now, when you say that in Houston, that's quite a significant stretch. It's, it's a little bit different than, than uh, being on the other side of Cahaba Heights or something. So nevertheless, I'd gotten this job, and because of the time of day that my classes were, and because of the amount of distance between where we lived and where the graduate school was, we needed a second vehicle. Now, we were poor, and we didn't have hardly any money at all, nothing saved up, so we scrounged around in the budget, and we figured out a way that if we could find the right used car that had the least amount of mileage, right, <laughs> and was the cheapest we could find, and all that kind of stuff, we could buy one, and we could, you know, shoulder a small car note. So we looked for cars, and one day I'm, on, I'm in this car parking lot, a car lot, used car salesman, uh, who was a friend of mine, I think, and, and I'm looking at this vehicle, and it appears to meet all the qualifications. It uh, appears to be in good working condition, and the mileage is right, and the price is low, but somewhere deep, deep down inside of me, I sensed God saying, don't buy this car. Now, in our hearts, we had already pulled the trigger. I don't know if you go through these kind of process where you know you have to buy the car or whatever. And so in our hearts, we'd already committed to this route of purchasing a vehicle. But I'm there, and somewhere deep inside of me, I have this sense, we, we don't need to buy a car right now. So I go home, and I tell Janelle, God doesn't want us to purchase a vehicle right now, which was kind of tricky because... It was, it was near the fall. The fall term was about to start, and I was supposed to be the professor, and there was no way that she could shuttle me, you know, all the way across Houston at the times that my classes were. I had night classes and things like that. So all we knew to do was wait, and within a couple of days, we got a phone call from a friend we hadn't talked to in a long time, and he didn't know anything about our situation that we were going through right then. And so you can imagine how surprised we were when he said to me, hey, Aubrey, we'd like to give you a car. And sure enough, it's the bullet. If you've never met the bullet, it's parked out in the parking lot. A Mercury Tracer. And it was everything, and that was almost three years ago. And it was everything we needed. Now, you might think that that story sounds hokey or quaint or contrived or whatever. But I was there. And along with David, who wrote the passage that Sarah Coleman read to us, I can say to you, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want anything. There's nothing that I'm going to lack. This is what David is saying. He's saying that because God is my shepherd, he leads me, and he guides me, and he protects me, and he provides for me. 
Now, when it comes to this part of scripture that we call the Psalms, there's 150 of them. And when you put them all together, we've got a kind of a fancy church word for it. It's called the Psalter. And when it comes to the Psalter, it's helpful to understand that right at the center of the Psalter, the nuclear reactor that drives the whole collection of Psalms, it is a vision of reality in which the Lord is in control of every person and everything. A vision of reality in which God reigns over everyone and everything. Now, Psalm 23, that's the number of the psalm that she read, the 23rd Psalm. If you have a Bible, I think there's some in the pews, you can look there. And if you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. There's no shame in that. David is who wrote this. He was a shepherd who became a king. And he had learned to live his life with a deep, profound confidence in God. In this God whose splendor overwhelms us in worship, David learned and he writes in this poem of praise, that God is my shepherd. Now, there was nothing new about calling God a shepherd. And in fact... The Israelites, David was an Israeli. The Israelites had been doing it, we know at least, we've got historical documentation, they had been referring to their God as a shepherd for at least 800 years. The Egyptians, they had two different gods that they referred to as a shepherd. So there was nothing new either in the Israelite religion or in world religions to call God a shepherd. But what's absolutely unique and what is uniquely powerful and it's found only here in all of this part of scripture. And it's found nowhere in Egyptian religion or in any other religion is the one little bitty personal pronoun. My shepherd. You see, in all the other places in the Jewish scriptures where God is referred to as a shepherd, it's always in relationship to his whole nation. It's always in relationship to the nation of Israel. He shepherds the whole flock of Israel. So it was always in terms of not this personal relating of God to Alan or God to anybody else in this. It was always how God related to his people as a whole. But here David for the first time puts an atomic bomb right at the heart of scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. He has a personal relationship, David does, with his maker. And because of that, he says, I will never, ever want. I will never, ever be without. He is confident that his shepherd knows how to find the way to the pasture. As a sheep, he doesn't feel like he ever has to blaze the trail because his shepherd is the maker of the cosmos. And David has personally experienced this in his past. Look how he ends the psalm. He ends the psalm, the very last verse. Surely, goodness and mercy. Surely, goodness and mercy is going to follow me. He gives goodness and mercy almost like they're sheepdogs. Chasing it. He's saying, look, I'm a sheep and I can't get away from these dudes. I could run over here or run over there. But goodness and mercy, they will track me down. I can't escape 
from the goodness of God. I can't escape from the mercy of God. And not just provision and not just guidance, but look what he says in verse 4. He says, because God is my shepherd, there is protection. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now notice David's not a Pollyanna, right? He's not saying, oh, I don't know, maybe if something weird happens and I get in trouble. No, he says, no, it's going to happen. He, say, he, he doesn't say that being a sheep in God's flock guarantees that I'm going to escape trouble. He says, no, but when I do, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. Not the God of the cosmos, but this personal relationship. You are with me. David knows that there will still be enemies. But he is confident that God's presence will provide everything he needs. Even when they're suffering. And even when he loses that which he thought he could never live without. Even in that moment, you will be with me. Now David has discovered that God is not some cosmic grandfather or just some dynamic force, but that God is personal. And David has this deep trust that ultimately God is in control. And David believes with all his guts that in the end, the thirsty will be satisfied and the slandered will be vindicated. And in this psalm and throughout the Psalter, there is this underlying profound conception of an infinitely personal God. God, the one and only, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at the same time, God is present. Now, there are places in the Psalms where the, or, where the authors of the Psalms feel like God is playing hide-and-go-seek. And they scream, and they yell, and they complain. But the very reason they're complaining is because they've come to expect him to always be present. And they never yield ground on this issue. Like I said at the start, the nuclear reactor at the center of the Psalms is a vision of reality in which God is always present and he rules over every situation and every person. Now, fast forward 1,000 years. And we get to the same piece of real estate that David had walked around on, Palestine or Israel or whatever you refer to it as. And Jesus is walking that same land. And he says this to the Israelites, the children of David, this country, this nation. He says, hey, you know David, your most famous king? You, you know how he called God his shepherd? Well, guess what? That's me. That's who I am. I am the good shepherd. This is what John Richardson read to us. John chapter 10. If you, if you want to turn there in your Bible. It's toward the right. Toward the maps. In John chapter 10. Jesus says in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And immediately he then does something very interesting. He gives us one of two decisive characteristics of life with the good shepherd. 
Look what he says in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then if you skip down to verse 15, he says it again. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then jump down to verse 17 like a broken record. I lay down my life. And then jump down to verse 18. I lay it down of my own accord. Now, way back when David, a thousand years previously, when David wrote the Psalms, if you've read the scriptures very much and you've ever read the part of the Old Testament that talks about the life of David, one of the things we learned is that when David was a young man, he was a shepherd. And he was a courageous shepherd. And on at least two occasions, his flock was attacked by the two great enemies of sheep in the Middle East at that time, a wolf and a bear. And in both occasions, David fought the bear and he fought the wolf. Now here Jesus is saying, you know how David fought the bear and the wolf to protect his flock? You need to understand that I'm going to go before you and I will lay, I will sacrifice my life in the face of your greatest enemies. And your greatest enemies are sin and death. And I will lay my life down in order to defeat those enemies for your benefit. Now that's the first characteristic of the good shepherd that Jesus lays out for us. See, Jesus is picking up Psalm 23 and he's saying, all that stuff, it's me. And then he adds something else that, again, he plays off of David and he kind of amplifies it. He says this down in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now this part of the Bible was written in the Greek language, a, a dialect of the Greek language we call Koine Greek. In, the, in Koine Greek they had multiple words for know, the, the noun knowledge or the verb to know. And, and each of them had different kind of nuances of meaning. The, the Greek word used here is gnosko, and it has a very particular meaning. It, it doesn't mean that I know something like I know two plus two. It doesn't mean I know something in an intellectual sense. The Greeks only used the word gnosko when they were talking about relational knowledge between two people who were intimate with one another. And Jesus says here, I know on a personal an intimate way, my sheep. I know Sarah Coleman. I know everything there is to know about her. And I just scared her, I think. <laughs> she jumped. But this is what you've got to get. It's not just that he's got this omniscient knowledge of me. No, omniscience can be cold and abstract and objective and removed. It's not that. It's the knowledge of two people that are dancing in perfect rhythm on a dance floor. I know my sheep. I know them. Look what it says in verse 3. Jesus is talking about this type of knowledge. He says, the sheep hear my voice. I call my own sheep by name. I lead them. And we could scroll our way through scripture after scripture after scripture where God calls people by name. And that's what David means when David says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
And he leads me. And he guides me. And if we learn to listen, every person in this room has the opportunity of recognizing the voice of Christ. And it takes practice, and it's difficult, and it's one of those things that doesn't come easy. And Sloan says to Janelle and I quite frequently, when I pray, I don't hear God. And we've got a lot of years, by the Lord's grace, to teach Sloan. And that's our great job as his parents. Look what Jesus says down in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep, they've learned how to recognize my voice. And as we do this, as Haley recognizes the voice of God, and she gets better and better at distinguishing the difference between the voice of Christ and last night's pizza, As she learns to recognize the voice of God, you know what will happen? A thread of love will begin to circle itself around Haley and her creator. And it will... Do you know that when I get in the mercury tracer, my creator gave that to me. And there is wrapped between me and him a thread of love that is creating a unity and a relationship that I would not have experienced if I would paid the cash at the used car lot. And wherever you are in life, this is what's amazing. The shepherd's voice, it's powerful. And it's patient. It will track you down. You can be funky for day after day, year after year, decade after decade, And the voice of the good shepherd will track you down. And it will keep calling you by your name. That's what Jesus says in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. For years, Mark told me he wasn't in the fold. He was running off, kind of doing his own thing. And Mark has said to me on a number of occasions, he's got a hard head. But God's voice, is, can, it can pierce any skull. And it can reach us anywhere. And it will pull us in. Jesus said, I must bring them in. It drives the good shepherd. And they will listen to my voice. And they will be one flock. And there will be one shepherd. No matter what's happened in life, God is calling your name. And he wants to establish a mutual personal, intimate relationship where he draws you into himself, where he will walk ahead of you and show you the way and lead you and guide you. Now there's a lot of people who go to church in this part of the world for all kinds of reasons. But they don't have a personal, intimate relationship with their creator. You can go to church because it's what you're supposed to do. And you can cherry pick your faith. Nip in for your children's dedication or baptism and then pop back out and show back up on Sunday or Easter or any time it's socially appropriate. But you're not learning to hear the voice of the good shepherd. And when you do that, when you do begin to shift gears and engage with God on a personal level, 
When you begin to entrust yourself to the good shepherd, things happen. Things change. This is what we saw in Acts. Acts chapter 4. I mean, can you imagine it? Peter and John, they were on their way to the temple to worship God. And there was a man who was lame and he asked them for money. And they said, we don't have any money, but we are in such an intimate relationship with our creator that we know we hear his whisper right now. And right now he's telling us that he wants to heal you. And all of a sudden, these two men. Now, if you've read the scriptures, Peter was a coward. Just a few days before this. Jesus is being crucified and a little girl walks up to him and says, hey, weren't you one of Jesus' followers? And this big Peter guy, looking at this little girl, backs down and freaks out and runs off like a little pansy. But this time, he's on his way to the temple and this guy says, hey, and he has been changed because he is now entrusting himself to the good shepherd and he hears the whisper of God. He hears the whisper of God saying, I will heal this person. And Peter prays for this cat and he jumps up and starts dancing a jig. Now everybody in the temple area, they know that this is lame Bill or whatever, the guy who's never been able to walk and now he's dancing. And so they all start gathering around and there's a huge crowd. So Peter, the ex-coward, he climbs up on a box and he starts telling these people about Jesus. But if we don't have time to read it, if you could read it, when he gets into it with these people, all the religious leaders show up. Now, these are the religious leaders who murdered Jesus. These are the religious leaders that killed Christ. They arrest Peter and John. It's nighttime, so they throw them in jail. And the next day, they get them together, and look what they say to these guys. Look down at verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them and were greatly annoyed. Now, it's bad when these guys are annoyed because the last time they got annoyed, they murdered a man. You don't want murderers annoyed at you. They were greatly annoyed, and so they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. It was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number came to about 5,000. Now look what happens in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who are of the high priestly family. And look what question these social elites asked Peter and John. By what power, what name did you do this? In other words, who authorized you to do this? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know that we are the people that run the show around here? Don't you know that? And look how Peter... I, I, if you could read this in the original language, they mess with the verbs, and the way they phrase it, it's kind of like saying to somebody, boy, don't you know who I am? They speak in a very condescending way and say, you're out and we're in, and you're flying out of your circle right now. And look how Peter, the ex-coward, responds. Verse 8. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, rulers of the people and elders. Now, that's pretty polite, but just buckle your seatbelt. He's buttering them up. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify. That's courage. He's picking a fight. 
with the people who murdered Christ and have the power to murder him. This man whom you crucified, it's him. We did this in his name. Verse 11, this Jesus is a stone that you rejected. He's become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. In other words, you think you've got the power of this town, but you don't understand real power. And I'm not afraid of you. Because there's salvation in no one else. Now, what has happened here is that Peter has entrusted himself to the good shepherd. And as a result, he fears no evil even when he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. Because he believes that Christ is his good shepherd and that Christ will go in front of him and meet any enemy he has. And no matter how the thing plays out, the presence of Christ will provide. Now there's a lot to see here and we don't have time to see all of it, but let me just point out one thing. Look at verse 9, the last word of verse 9. By what means this man has been healed. Okay? Now drop down to verse 12 and look at the last word there. Saved. It says, there's no other name under heaven by which all men must be saved. Again, in the language that this was written in, that is the same word as the last word of verse 9. The word heal and the word save, it's the exact same word. Again, we don't have time to do all of this, but let me just say, I love how the Gospels, how Scripture cuts through our two-party religious system with liberals over on the side and fundies over on this side. And the fundies who are going around trying to save all the souls but really don't give a rip if you're poor and starving and whatever else, we just got to get you saved. And then the liberals over here who don't ever seem to get around to saying that there's sin that's driving you into hell, but they want to help the physical need. Part of what's going on here is that the is that God is saying we need to cut right through that kind of two-party religious system and recognize that the gospel is concerned about both of these things. That to reach out to somebody in their physical need and reach out to somebody in their spiritual need, this is what the gospel does. What we see is that Peter and John, as they entrust themselves into the good shepherd's reign, what we see is that they have become courageous agents of healing for the sick and for the lost. One more thing. The last scripture that was read. 1 John chapter 3 read by John Brandon. Look what it says in verse 16. 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In other words, the author of this scripture is saying, hey, our good shepherd died for us and we should be willing to lay our life down for other people. And dying for someone is a fairly fine Christian thing to do. But the reality is, more than likely, you and I will never be called to make that sacrifice. So look what he says in the very next verse. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in that person? See, John is saying here, 
We can sit around and daydream all day long about if we would be a martyr for Christ or not. But the world doesn't need heroic acts of martyrdom. Not right now. Not in the world we live in. John is saying what the world needs are heroic acts of material sacrifice. He's saying the need of the world sometimes is not what the fundies are screaming about. Sometimes the need at hand is not to go and stand on a soapbox and preach. Sometimes the need at hand is a pair of clothes or a job or food or friendship. What the world needs is for those who have to help those who don't. And John is saying to us here that, that the Christian life is a life of love and action. And not just a bunch of Christianese sound bites or vacuous promises or barren rhetoric. Here's a call for us to be a, a people that are shaped by the Good Shepherd, who refuse to hide behind the mask of busyness, or refuse to hide behind the constant inflated language of our Christian culture. We need to be shaped by the Good Shepherd so that we never hide behind the bureaucracy of an institutionalized church. All things new. This is a church commit, committed to keeping our focus on the reign of Christ, to entrust ourselves as individuals and as a group to the good shepherd. And that means that we are committing ourselves to listen for his voice, his voice that will speak to each one of us personally. And Christ will speak to our church. And as we do this, as we learn to hear his voice, as we learn to follow him, as we learn to entrust ourselves to the good shepherding of Christ, then we will be a people that are formed by God's reign in this world. And here's the clincher. Like Peter and John in the book of Acts, and then like John again in 1 John chapter 3, when we yield ourselves to the Good Shepherd and we discipline our life to slow down and to learn to hear the voice of God, and we will be changed into the kind of people who live our lives more thoroughly for the sake of the world. That's what happens when you entrust yourself to the Good Shepherd. Like Peter, we will become courageous agents of healing for the sick and the lost. And like John, we will become generous agents of healing for the poor and the needy. And one thing we will not be is a church with a myopic vision that serves our own needs and forgets and turns a blind eye or gives an excuse of whatever form for the greater work of God in this community. All Things New is committed to participate as God's people at God's invitation and God's own mission within the world for the redemption of this community and all of the other communities that we go into. Let's pray.